This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Greetings, I am Barry. If you're searching for answers, spiritual help, clairvoyant readings, healings, crystals, books, incense, or jewellery, you need to go to Infinity, Hamilton Spiritual Centre, in the new premises at 550 Anglesey Street, or you can phone us on 838 1838. This is your link between this life and the next. Become the change the world needs today. Can you hear Greetings, I am Barry. This is the voice within for another week. Well, as we sit in here, our bubbles in uh, varying warm and cold and rain and wet and various temperatures. In the UK, in England and other northern hemisphere, of course, it's getting towards the end of summer. And it's during this period, or from June onwards probably, that crop circles start to appear around the northern hemisphere mainly in in England um, and down in Wiltshire seems to be the the hub of it all that's where it all happens every year some stunning ones again this year have appeared so I thought we'd just have a little look at um, at crop circles this is Freddie Silver he was over here oh quite a few years ago caught up with him interviewed him and so on and so on Um, went to one of his lectures while he was here and he was to come back again before the last lockdown but he never made it um but he's a he's a real expert on crop circles welcome to conscious evolution radio with your host Anne gelsheimer we are entering higher levels of consciousness with both old and new spiritual technologies to help us be the people we've always dreamed of being. We can make the choice to evolve in consciousness and become the change the world needs today. Now, here is Ann Gelsheimer. Hello, this is Ann Gelsheimer, and welcome to Conscious Evolution Radio. When I first started to think about what guests I would most love to have on this new radio program that focuses on paths to higher consciousness and also contact with spiritually advanced extraterrestrials, Freddie Silva was one of the first guests on my wish list, and now he's here with us today as our guest. Freddie is a best-selling author and independent researcher of ancient systems of knowledge, alternative history, and earth mysteries. He's a professional photographer and has made documentary films and also conducts tours to sacred sites in Britain, France, Malta, Peru, and Egypt. 
Freddie is a very popular international lecturer and has been described by the CEO of Universal Light Expo as perhaps the best metaphysical speaker in the world right now, and I would certainly second that evaluation. I'm a huge fan of Freddie's research into crop circles, the ancient spiritual technologies within temples and sacred sites, and I'm fascinated by his understanding of initiation and how to access higher states of consciousness. So, Freddie, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show, and welcome to Conscious Evolution Radio. Well, thanks for having me on, Anne. So, I wonder if we could jump right in and start talking about crop circles. What are they, what impact are they having, and who or what is making them? Uh, yes, the perennial question. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was asking myself the same thing, and uh, uh, thank God I had so many interesting experiences and first-hand experiences to draw from, uh, which actually enabled me to actually um, talk from a first-hand person, and uh, I sort of ended up, ended up sort of giving up my career, and a very lucrative one of that to pursue that line of inquiry. And um, it sort of became my understanding that these, uh, the, the, the real phenomenon, uh, not the stuff that you see on television, that's always portrayed as being made by two guys with pieces of wood and string, uh, which the, the whole story was blown out of the water very early on, but never made it to the media, that these people were actually hired by MI5 in Britain to say that they, they did all this. And of course, it created a huge uh, chasm in the uh, in, in the field, so to speak. But the real phenomenon is very, very different. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, luck over the years communicating with the source to the point where we're actually predicting within 24 hours where the real circles are going to appear. And, uh, yeah, and usually there'll be sort of a kind of a humor about it as well. Uh, they'd always appear behind us uh, after we spent the whole <laughs> night watching the field, uh, just letting us know that we can make contact, but at the same time not totally giving away what the method was. And uh, I think that there was a, a very good reason for that. It was because the method is not really important. You know, what's important is the message, and much of the message uh, tends to be partly technological. It was also uh, partly spiritual, but also in some of the symbols that were given, there was also a healing that was also involved, and specifically with people who would interact with these symbols, either in the field or in, the, in des- by design. And even the skeptics, they would have uh, uh, an experience, a spiritual experience or, or a healing experience. Uh, and it came to, uh, really to dominate the forefront of my research with the crop circles, which is really, you know, why are they here? What are they doing here? And it seems to me that they're appearing at a time in our history on Earth when we've actually stopped creating sacred sites and that when you start plotting the evolution of sacred space across the face of the Earth for at least the last 12,000 years, uh, for the first time in our evolution for about a 1,000 years, we have not built temples. Uh, the last people who built temples were the Templars with their Gothic cathedrals. And I think that the reason why the crop circles are appearing now at this juncture is simply to fill that gap and to remind us that there's a connection that's been lost and it's a very important one. That is fascinating, and I, I'd love to. Would you explain what that connection is? I know there's a lot to it, but uh, it's very interesting. Oh, it's, it's a huge component, and it's, and it's almost, um, I mean, people laugh at this when you talk about sort of a new age movement or a higher consciousness, but you know what? It's, it's the one thing that we're all missing. I mean, we ha- there's no app for this. Uh, in fact, right. I, I sort of, uh, I tend to sort of describe this as sort of the planet of the apps. Uh, taken over the face of the earth and we're totally redundant in our connection to life and you only had to look at what was happening with the uh, hurricane when it hit um, 
New Jersey last year, and there was uh, images of people trying to plug in their cell phones. And of course, there's no electricity. There's no cell phone connection. Uh, these people couldn't even find out where to buy a bottle of water. And it just shows you in one very dramatic case how far and how distant we've become from the planet that gave birth to us. And uh, it's a central message in what the crop circles are about. It's, uh, it's a simplistic view. Uh, obviously, we, we could spend all, in days talking about this. But it really comes down to the fact that uh, we need to rekindle the connection that we had for so long uh, with the spirit world. We can talk to any native culture on the end of the world, and you know, they still live uh, in connection to the spirit. They have one foot in the physical world, but they also honor that spirit around them, the spirit of nature. And it's, uh, it, it's very important. And uh, I think the crop circles by that connection that they're trying to show us, even as a researcher, that they can be connected with, they can uh, show that we do have the ability to reach out into the natural world or the spirit world and communicate with levels of reality which are much finer than ours, uh, shows that we're much greater than the sum of our parts. And um, it did take me very long, uh, in my experience, to understand as, a, uh, as an atheist uh, how easy it is to make that reconnection. And once you make that reconnection, you suddenly discover a belief in God very, very quickly because when you're in touch with uh, a reality that's, you know, it's, it's not so far away as you might think. It's actually closer than you think. But when you connect with a reality that's different from ours and it starts to communicate back and it starts giving you important information and it starts giving you information that takes, uh, allows you to take control of your life, then you suddenly realize that you, as a small little being, are actually very intimately connected to a much greater web. And when you realize that, your life takes on a very deep meaning. Uh, it takes on a spiritual depth. It takes on a practical depth. And more importantly, uh, above everything else, it gives you a certain degree of control over the way you actually live here on Earth. Uh, and I can't think of anything more self-empowering in this day of the planet of the apps. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> now, I've heard you talk, it was very interesting, about how you would recognize an authentic crop circle, that there's real differences between those and the ones made by Bill and Bob with the board, and, <laughs> and also, and how, how would we engage? So how, how do you recognize them, and how do we engage in, in, fully with a crop circle? It, uh, it didn't take long, actually, to take the, uh, tell the difference. In fact, it took me about an hour when I first got involved, um, there were some things that, that um, came over to test me. And at the time, I was working with the acknowledged expert uh, on the subject, uh, Colin Andrews. And uh, we became good friends. And uh, he was trying to test some of my sort of understanding. And uh, he actually took me to uh, a man-made one, which I didn't know it was man-made at the time. And uh, I didn't get anything from it. And it was messy. And uh, not, there wasn't anything sort of spiritual or important about it. And I was kind of, kind of disappointed. Uh, but then his phone rang. We ran over to another one uh, down the road, and it, it was, I, I can only describe going to this next design as being hit by this invisible wave of water. Uh, it was like liquid air that uh, threw me against the, the, the car on the side of the road, and wow. I just felt totally different, like I, I was having an out-of-body experience. And uh, nothing really prepared me for that moment, but I can say, hand on heart, that the moment I walked into this new one, uh, my life changed forever. It's as if you became much more aware of the space around you. You could hear things with greater clarity. You could see with, great, with greater depth. Uh, but there were 
there was also the sense that you're being surrounded by a lot of individuals that you couldn't see, but yet you felt very loved is the only way I can approach it. And uh, immediately the difference was, was very adamant because you saw in these genuine designs that the plants weren't damaged. In fact, they're bent just above the soil. Uh, it's almost as if the plants themselves were hovering above the soil to the point where once you walked in, you actually crushed them and uh, they touched the mud. Uh, and then there was, of course, the beautiful soil pattern. The way that when you looked at the, these plants, they were assembled in this beautiful liquid waveform as though they were beautifully presented in a museum display case. Uh, it was a work of art. In fact, it felt really odd walking on this. It felt sacrilegious, uh, as if you're walking on the Sistine Chapel ceiling and you're desecrating a, a major piece of art. Um, but, and then, of course, there was the, uh, the anomalies that went with this. You know, there was missing time. There was the effects, uh, electromagnetic effects on equipment. Uh, cameras would fail. Uh, airplanes would uh, refuse to fly over them. Um, there was, of course, the uh, magnetizing of metallic objects. And also there were certain things about the soil, uh, which seemed to have a, a different type of electrical charge to it than could not be found without. So all of these things began to add up. And you began to quite quickly differentiate one from the other. But the one thing that was very clear was that the real ones also possessed a strange hypnotizing symbolic language. Uh, and even to this day, uh, I can even tell the fakes from the real ones just by looking at the image, because one of them is just so harmonic and it literally it's like puts you in a, in a trance. And when you show these uh, real ones to Native Americans, for example, or any Aboriginal culture, they react very emotionally. And most of them actually never knew what the crop circles were. They just thought they were looking at pictographs um, and the kind of etchings that you often find on stones from right. their prehistory. And uh, they just said, oh, these are the symbols of the gods. It shows that they have returned. And uh, to which we said, aha. <laughs> right. <laughs> that makes it quite clear. So there was that intimate connection from the very beginning. And um, once we sort of made that, uh, that leap in understanding, then it became, uh, it was like engaging with a communication with a long lost friend. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, that you were able to predict when they would actually appear. I, I'm curious, how did you do that? It was literally by using uh, our God-given uh, intuitive ability. I suddenly okay. decided to do an experiment uh, in 1999. Uh, I'd become a dowser by, by this point as well. I also wanted to practice my dowsing skills. So I would actually uh, ask people without telling them what this was about. And um, you also have to understand that at the end of each season, there used to be a major season closing uh, design, something that encapsulated everything that appeared that year. And it was always major, it was always powerful, and it made a good entrance. And uh, I'd asked five different people from different walks of professional life on two different continents to predict where this was going to be, when, and what it was bound to look like. And the information was uh, sealed off from each one of them, and uh, every one of them got it absolutely right. They all had the same geometry. They were all within half a mile of this one field in this small town in England, which is extraordinary, given right. that two of these people were from America. Um, then there was the fact that the, uh, uh, the designs were also uh, quite similar. And the only thing that uh, we didn't manage to pin down was the exact time. And that's always been a problem because time outside of our realm is very, very different uh, to ours. So we did pretty well with 24 hours. And uh, what I did 
was that I would go around dowsing from crop circle to crop circle, and I would predict, using my dowsing equipment, where the next one would be likely to be. And I got it down to a very fine art to within two fields across, say, a 15-mile piece of land, which is pretty accurate. That is. And, and again, it was... Um, and at one point, I just, gave, I just threw the rods away, and I just started using my uh, God-given ability. And I, was, I found, uh, looking at my notes, that I could predict very accurately where the next things were going to appear. So again, it, it was demonstrating that by interacting with another level of reality, uh, what most people would describe in the ancient days as gods uh, or the forces of nature, that you can do it. You can actually become like a god. You can behave in ways which are very intuitive. And I've seen this ability also developing people who work in this subject uh, and also in, in ancient temples as well, that the more you uh, open yourself to this possibility and you begin to become much more aware of your capabilities and you can then apply these, uh, it gives you permission to become much more confident in applying these intuitive abilities in your daily life. And then, of course, the next step is that your manifestation process starts taking on a much greater gravitas because you, you begin to see the relationship between thought, intent, and manifestation. And I believe that's also one of the things that the crop circles were showing us and certainly have shown a lot of people that have been associated with this phenomenon that you can actually develop your ability to create and create in a very positive way. I love that. And, and that's really why I created this show was to highlight the idea that we can make the choice to evolve, to evolve our consciousness. And then as we acquire knowledge and, and open ourselves to the experience, as you're describing, it has a life of its own. The process has a life of its own. Exactly. And uh, I mean, the, and the thing that would link this process together was our understanding and connection to the natural cycle of life. And that's something we've lost. And that's the reason why, you know, crop circles are appearing, the reason why our ancestors built temples uh, to make sure that they would last until that time. You know, they could have used tree trunks to, you know, make these things look good. But no, they, they used very large stones to make sure that we'd know where to go and what to expect when we got there. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about that, because I, I don't think people naturally make that intuitive leap between crop circles, pyramids, cathedrals, sacred sites, but they are all serving a similar purpose. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Uh, yeah, in fact, it's the, uh, the biggest um, lesson to learn from the crop circles is that once you start analyzing them in depth, as I have, uh, you actually are describing the same principles that go into making a cathedral or a pyramid or Stonehenge, uh, it's the same laws of uh, temple making. Uh, the, the, uh, the crop circles apply the uh, use of water. You know, wherever there's groundwater, uh, especially large deposits of uh, water below the soil, crop circles would appear on that soil. Uh, they draw electromagnetism to them, as do ancient sacred sites. Uh, they feature sacred geometry. Uh, they use a specific type of numerical value in their measure, which is a, an old system of measuring temples called the megalithic yard, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, the only difference between a crop circle and a pyramid is the fact that one's made of stone. Uh, but the effects are the same. We also see in temples a connection to uh, the Earth's systems of energy. So wherever you find a real crop circle, uh, you will also find the intersecting lines of the Earth's energy grid, as you will do at any sacred site. And the thing that links all these things together is that both in sacred sites and in crop circles, you will find uh, a, a large rate of people experiencing healings and out-of-body states, uh, and usually altered states of awareness. 
So these things are linked, and that's why I began to sort of promote the two together as, as though they were basically part of the same package because, you know, most people have seen stuff on television which has thrown them off the entire crop circle phenomenon, unfortunately. Um, so when I start actually addressing them as new temples, now that gets people's attention because we can understand the pyramid. We can understand Stonehenge. And once you start saying that these are basically the same as crop circles, now that really gets people interested. Because That's news. Either. <laughs> exactly. But they're built exactly on the same laws of temple building, uh, which is why I call them the new temples.
That's Enigma and a track called Northern Lights. Now you heard Freddie there talking about um, the crop circles and his experiences. I went to the conference in, in Wiltshire a few years ago and part of it would you would go on a, on a bus trip to visit some crop circles. The first one I went to, I could not believe it. I was blown away. I was... I just couldn't talk. I, I went, walked up the tram lines, which is where the tractors go, to the edge of the crop circle. And as soon as I got into it, I couldn't talk. The, the energy was just overwhelming. It's incredible. Exactly as Freddie described. And when I came to walk around the crop circle, I could only go in the direction that the, the wheat was laid down. I couldn't go against it. It was as though the, the energy was just driving me round the way that it was laid out amazing amazing experience but the thing was when i went i decided to go to the crop circles um the conference came up so i booked booked the flights got went back went back to england and i went with the intention of creating a crop circle as freddie was talking about i i've got a family coat of arms and on it is a cross with a with a long tail and I went there with the intention of trying to create this crop circle. Anyway, the conference went on for, for three or four days, and then it finished on the Sunday. And then on Monday, the next, circle, the next crop circle that appeared was a cross with a long tail. It was curved. It wasn't square like my one. But the, the, it was so close, you could not believe it. I, I was, you know... You, you are your own gods, you can create what you want. And I, I'm, I'm convinced that that's what I created with help from my extraterrestrial friends. Anyway, we'll get back to, um, back to Freddie's story. And this is Anne Gelsheimer. You're listening to Conscious Evolution Radio. And my guest today is Freddie Silva. We've been talking about crop circles and how crop circles are actually very similar to pyramids, cathedrals, temples. So, Freddie, let's continue that conversation. Yeah, the, uh, the, the overwhelming amount of research that's been done in ancient temples uh, seems to suggest that sort of um, living organisms, in fact, the Egyptians actually addressed uh, their pyramids and their temples as uh, living beings. Um, there was a time when the priests used to go around before dawn and go into each room of the temple and address the, uh, each room as, as though it was part of an inan- a being, an animate being, who was being uh, r- risen from a deep sleep. And that occurred every day at dawn. And uh, recently we found that by measuring the uh, energy around temples at dawn, uh, there is a huge uh, rise in the electromagnetic energy of the land, as well as a slight alteration of the Earth's gravitational field just before dawn around major temples in the world. And we found exactly the same thing in crop circles as well. Uh, So these things are sort of acting like the Earth's uh, energy boxes. So it's not surprising then that people uh, gravitate towards both if they have an open mind. And uh, once you enter any of these uh, temples, regardless of what they look like, um, it's as though you're accessing a different and much finer level of reality. And if you care to open yourself further, uh, it's amazing how the uh, the temple seems to actually pick up on your energy as though you're, you're a kind of credit card. 
and it starts reading your uh, PIN number. And if the PIN uh-huh. number matches with the temple, amazing things begin to happen to you. And uh, again, I'm talking from experience where I, you know, I go to these temples and, you know, I don't have to do drugs. I can actually see things inside these places because you're so intimately connected with the spirit of place that it starts uh, responding back to you. And if you do this enough, you'll start seeing uh, other, uh, you'll actually start seeing beings walking through the temples as though you are naturally psychic. And uh, I've done this as well. And if people have said uh, that I had this ability, I thought they were mad. Uh, so I have seen people coming out of the stones of the Great Chamber in the, in the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid. Uh, I have seen uh, strange, unusual um, light forms coming out of crop circles. Uh, and it's astonishing when you actually sit there and you see this happening to you, because usually you hear about some television and you think, maybe, yeah, maybe or maybe not. Maybe they're making it up. I don't know. But when it happens to you, it really alters your sense of perception. Uh, it yes. begins to, uh, to make you wonder just how much of an intimate relationship you do have with other forms of life, uh, which uh, are just sort of transitory. They are passing through our level of reality. Uh, but you can engage with them at uh, multiple levels. And uh, one of the things that I really enjoy about taking people, as well as myself, to sacred sites and crop circles is that uh, is to engage with the spirit of place. And depending on how you structure your intent before you go into these places, uh, you tend to get back exactly what you asked for, uh, either while you're there or long after you've actually left, uh, sometimes in your dreams, sometimes in your waking vision, sometimes when you're just writing things down. Uh, the temple and the spirit of place speaks back to you in a way you would never would have believed. Uh, and that's when your life starts taking on a different meaning. You start living life in the way that ancient mystics used to describe as totally awake or aware. Uh, they had a, a phrase for, for people like that back then. They called them the uh, risen from the dead uh, because they used to describe people who were walking through life unaware as being the dead. Right. Uh, they accepted life as being uh, a short, uh, painful experience, bookended by birth and death, and before you know it, you're out of here. But to people who understood this, the uh, method of the force, as, as we call it in the modern era, uh, the force, if you engage with it, it will allow you to have these experiences, and uh, the temples are doing exactly that to you. They're heightening your electrical field, and once your electrical field starts getting heightened, then obviously everything else follows. Your imagination is stimulated. You your auditory senses are improved, and before you know it, uh, you're engaging with some, a different level of reality inside these spaces. So these are very powerful physical spaces. I'm just curious whether it's possible to engage with them at a distance. In oh, other totally. words, through meditation, would, would there be similar effects? Oh, totally. Uh, in fact, you don't even need a temple because uh, even Jesus uh, wrote about this. He said, you know, the temple of God resides within everybody. Uh, because if you are that adept, then you don't need external things to basically help you connect with the source of things, uh, what some people would call God. And um, But the, the Greeks actually made a very good point of this uh, when they uh, rebuilt the Temple of Edfu in Egypt. There's a lovely... Um, a bit of humor on uh, one of its walls that said, uh, uh, we will continue building temples un- until people recognize they are the temple. So it, it just shows you that uh, you, know, you don't need exter- external stimuli to actually communicate with these spaces. You can do it by yourself, but you, if you can't, uh, even sitting in my living room as I am now, uh, I can think uh, uh, consciously 
about any place I want in the world. And just by that intent, I create a bridge which links me uh, electromagnetically to that place. And it will know before I even thought of it that it's thinking uh, that I'm thinking of it. Uh, and that's how you basically work with these spaces. Uh, the ancients had a wonderful way of phrasing it. They used to call it building rainbow bridges. And today, with our modern technology, we do understand that when we actually focus and shape our intent and give it a direction and a uh, location, what we're doing is we're sending out a packet of information electromagnetically, and that packet reaches its uh, destination. Uh, the most uh, obvious example I can uh, place here is the time when you think very longingly about someone you haven't spoken with for quite a while, and within minutes, that person is on the phone calling you. And I can't tell you how many times I've done that. And I tell you, my phone bill is the lowest in the world. It really does work <laughs> at a very that's basic great. level. Very practical benefit. <laughs> it's a very practical benefit. But that's how they used to do it in the old days, you see. They actually were able to shape that intent to such a degree that they could do things. They could shape reality to uh, do their own bidding. And uh, you can do it, too. We can all do this. Uh, and this is why the Greeks wrote this uh, phrase on the walls of the, uh, the temples, because they said, you know, it's a good reminder that we can communicate at a distance, but we can also communicate within ourselves to the center of things. There, there really is no distance, ultimately. Exactly. That's, that is what I was thinking. And I wonder if you could help, uh, for those of us who might be just approaching these sacred spots for the first time, what might be a beneficial intent um, so that we're, we're, we're approaching it from the, our highest potential? Oh, I think the best thing to do is just approach these uh, places with a complete open mind and uh, without any particular desire to expect anything to happen. Uh, there's a tendency to, in, in the human nature to go to places expecting it to happen. And, of course, it will happen because it's coming right out of your own mind because you want it to happen. And, of course, your brain will start doing all of these things to make sure it manifests exactly what you want. Um, I found that actually tends to be something that comes from your ego rather than from what is actually happening. And what I tend to do as an exercise is to just go quietly, uh, ask for nothing, uh, or just ask to be shown something that would be in my best interests. And leave it at that, because sometimes we don't know what our best interests are. You know, right. our, uh, our ego and our soul are two very different machines. And if you're lucky in this lifetime, the two might even synchronize. So I tend to sort of just go in a very quiet way. Uh, for example, I just went to Peru and Bolivia and uh, for the first time. And I have a fundamental understanding of what the sites are and what they do down there. But I didn't really want to sort of take my preconceptions there uh, unless I was asked by the people in the group for information, which I gave them. So for me, part of the journey was to go there, you know, and say, well, what can I receive from these uh, that would be for my highest interest as a teacher? And I just left it at that and expected nothing. And my God, there's reams of information that started coming up. And it was almost instantaneous. It's as, if, it's as if the site already knew that I was coming. They knew that I prepared correctly in, in order to have, you know, an acceptance of a connection with the spirit of place. And before you knew it, there was information popping left, right, and center uh, out of the woodwork. So that's what I, what I usually tell people to do. If you, if you don't really know what you're going there to do, if you haven't yet fashioned your intent uh, and you're kind of new at this, and just uh, go with the spirit of reverence and humility. And uh, you'll find that when you get home, stuff will start coming out from your fingers, from your pen. And then the second time you go back to the this, this same place, you'll get a different level of reality. And the third time you go back, the place really opens up. And then 
as I always warn, warn people, be careful what you ask because you might get it. And sometimes what you receive is not exactly what you thought you were expecting, but it will always be for your best interests. And then though it might be a little challenging at times, uh, you'll find 10 years from now, your life would have moved and uh, in leaps and bounds. That uh, that makes sense. And it sounds like a stepwise process, too. I mean, people placing themselves in the physical proximity to these sacred places. And then down the road, perhaps they won't even need to be in the physical proximity, as we talked about doing the meditations at a distance. Now, I also saw, um, when I was looking at your new book, I, and I, I was looking online as well, that when you were taking pictures in these sacred sites, there were incredible orbs that would appear in the pictures. Uh, very beautiful, very detailed. And I know you're a professional photographer, and you'd know the difference between a dust spot and, a, and an orb. So I wonder if oh, you yeah. could talk to us about that. <laughs> I thought it was a strange thing, and uh, I thought at first that perhaps these were artifacts of digital photography. And then I sat down uh, with a wonderful gentleman called uh, uh, Mycel Ledworth, and uh, he's a, sort of the acknowledged expert on orbs uh, today, and uh, we're having a good pint, as uh, one does with a nourishman. And um, we, we, I was saying, you know, it's funny, I, as a professional photographer, I cannot explain how, wh- how it is that sometimes you get them and in the next picture you don't. I don't expect that to happen with dust. Uh, and I don't expect that to happen with anomalies. The anomalies would continue for a certain amount of time. But what I found, to my amazement, when I was in some of the Egyptian temples and I was doing some conscious experiments, uh, I began to realize that when I approached the hot spots of the temple, which is usually around the altar, uh, and I had and been around temples long enough to actually to be able to perceive and even see energy where it, where it happens to exist. It's one of the byproducts of doing this work. Uh, I, I always managed to get this incredible array of orbs suddenly in my camera. And I thought, well, I wonder if there's a, a relation between the two. Uh, and I actually did an experiment where I uh, filmed myself walking sideways through this energy field, and they look like invisible tunnels. That's what they basically are. They're like big rivers. Um, and uh, I, there's a sort of definitive edge to them. So I'm photographing, if you can imagine, the, uh, looking down a river, and I'm walking to the right. And as I'm walking to the right, and obviously close to the riverbank, uh, the orbs are slowly moving to the left and following that river. Whereas by the time I've actually moved out of the actual invisible river, I've got nothing. I've just got a basic photograph. And then I started moving back to the left, back into the stream of energy. The orbs start moving back into the picture. So I suddenly realized, my God, these things are actually aligned to the Earth's magnetic field. They are following the invisible uh, pathways of energy. Well, what happens if you try to communicate with them? And first, uh, the first experiments were not that successful. I was really trying very, very hard to communicate. And usually when you do that, nothing happens. But then there was a moment when I just let it all go. And uh, I was taking photographs, I remember, of the altar of the Temple of Edfu. And there was orbs, incredible things, very geometric things, uh, structuring themselves in my camera. And uh, suddenly I realized, you know, I've got all of these pictures of orbs, but you know what? There are people in my life that don't really dig this kind of thing. And I thought, you know, it'd be nice to have a photograph without anything, a normal picture. And I take the picture and they go away. And I went, oh, hello. They can be communicated with. And I forgot to ask that request on the next picture and they came back. So that then took on a life of its own because then I got together with um, a couple of people in one of my groups 
that uh, work with Reiki, and I said, let's try and consciously better the men using just conscious intent, but without expectation. Uh, and sure enough, the more we did it, the more we could actually bring them in a conscious method into the photograph. And the results were really related to the amount of effort that we put in uh, to the point where if we started to mentalize the process, they would disappear. And that was the trigger. We suddenly realized that it goes back to the crop circles again, how when you, and, and also when you approach sacred sites, that when you actually engage with these spaces in a sort of uh, almost non-committal way where you're sort of half between wake and, uh, and consciousness, it's that moment in between that the magic really occurs. And uh, it was true for the orbs as well. Uh, down to the point where uh, I'd been uh, in the cathedral filming uh, for a documentary. And in that moment where I'm not really thinking and yet I'm slightly out of, the, of my uh, conscious self, I suddenly see these actual physical orbs moving down the aisle and almost grazing my foot and to the point where I could actually hear the thing talking back to me. And it was saying to me, hi, how's the filming going? I'm going very well, thank you. How's your day? And he says, what, what you're looking for is back here. Follow me. And I followed this orb to the back of this uh, cathedral. And there in the stained glass at the one time in the morning where you see it is this huge blue pyramid in the stained glass. And you can only see it at sunrise at the back of the building and oh, hidden wow. within the stained glass. And it's there. It was part of the actual design of the stained glass but no one's ever seen it before, uh, was an actual interpretation of the design of the aisle, which uh, showed the, um, the chakra points uh, on the, uh, arranged around the staff and two intertwined serpents. And I've been thinking exactly about that. You know, is, are these cathedrals built exactly to the chakras of the human body? So the orb manifested in, a, in response to my question that I'd asked, how are these cathedrals built according to the human body? And there it was at the back of the cathedral. So it just shows you the, the kind of magic that you can do when you interact with these spaces. Now, you know, I, I live in a house in the country. It's on top of about seven different rivers. It's called the Hills of the Headwaters. But when I first moved in, there were so many orbs that I caught accidentally uh, with my digital camera, I was actually taking photos for the constructing the construction that was going to happen. But I interacted with them in the same way you did. I, I asked them, could you leave the picture, please? I need a picture without the orbs. I swear there was about a hundred of them. They all left. I took the picture. <laughs> and then I said, okay, you can come back in now. And then they all came back in. And that so changes now, everything, absolutely. And I mean, this is not a, well, it may be sacred land from, from a long time ago, but it's it's an ordinary dwelling. But I'm curious, what do you make of what these orbs are? I asked that to a, a, a friend of mine who happens also to be one of the world's greatest um, trans mediums and uh, to the point where the uh, English uh, police and the military actually go and knock on her door for help when they're really stuck on cases. And uh, they don't obviously admit to this. Uh, and uh, during one of the sessions with her when she was in trance, I did ask the question. That the answer that I got back was, well, they're pure consciousness, uh, what you call earth spirits or fairies or sprites. And uh, as you've probably noticed, uh, the source said, that um, they seem to follow the magnetic pathways uh, of the earth, uh, which is what also UFOs also use to project themselves. Uh, it's what uh, you know, temples are built upon. It's what crop circles appear on. So there's this wonderful relationship between conscious and manifestation and these orbs and these places of power. They're all using the Earth's natural systems in order to uh, evolve, in order to communicate, and also to make themselves known to us. 
So this is why it was so important for the ancestors to honor and walk these uh, spirit lines, as they call them, the spirit pathways or the fairy paths, uh, because they knew that they were living. They were pathways of communication between our world and the, and the next. Uh, and sometimes these uh, energy forms manifest themselves in visual balls of light, which I've seen in photographs several times. And at the very end of the spectrum, of course, you have the UFO phenomenon, which, of course, is a, a derivation of this phenomenon, but on a much more technical level. So we're going to pause right there and come back to exactly that topic because I know many people who will be listening have seen uh, when they're out doing the UFO watching or the ET watching, they have seen the orb. Yes, no 
Hillary and the Massive Mellow. He's um, did a lot of his recording down down that part of England, down near the crop circles in Somerset. I think he lives in Wales now, in a yurt somewhere. Another environmentalist. Listening to Freddie talking about connecting with other spaces when you're not there, remotely. There, there was an Earth Day. I'm not sure which year it was, and I was in the Avebury Circle, which is down that part of the world, Wiltshire, down there, um, down near Stonehenge. And um, a friend and I were going to bury a crystal in in honour of Earth Day to connect us all around the world, like I do. And um, we went, and it was raining, it was a bad day. We went and stood by the stones. Avebury is an almost great big circle of stones. We went and stood by the stones at 12 o'clock, lunchtime, and tried to connect. And nothing seemed to be coming through. And I moved four or five stones down the line, where there was a, a massive triangle, or well, square-shaped stone stuck in the ground on its corner, known as a silvery stone. And I stood there, and that's when it happened. That's when I connected. I connected with the pyramids and the pyramids in in Mexico, and they were all streaming energy up to the air, up into the air. Amazing, amazing sight within my own mind. But it's re- connecting remotely, you know, with the, when I was in Egypt and when I was in Mexico and so on. And then he's talking about photography. A few years later, on my way round somewhere, I always invariably end up going via England somewhere. I was back in the Avery Circle, all on my own this time, and I went in and uh, I was taking some photographs, various shots of the stones and uh, the village and so on, and sat and meditated near this tree where we'd um, buried this crystal. Anyway, came out, did, did, went to get some lunch and did some odd things, and then uh, went to look at the photographs there was none all the ones I'd taken in within the circle were not there all the ones I'd taken going into the circle and the ones I'd taken afterwards were all there makes you wonder eh anyway we'll get back to talk to Freddie again listen to what he has to say Hi, this is Ed Gelsheimer. You're listening to Conscious Evolution Radio, and our guest today is Freddie Silva. So we've been talking about crop circles and sacred sites, and in our last segment, we were talking about orbs and the appearance of orbs in various places. 
I just wanted to mention that uh, for those of us who are actually doing human-initiated contact with ETs, there's a set of protocols. We go out into the fields, and we are having phenomenal success with that. But orbs are very much a part of what we experience. Sometimes we actually will see the orbs. Uh, they're, they're very obvious. Uh, and sometimes they'll show up in the digital photographs. So, Freddie, I just wondered if you had any comments on that. Um, yeah, actually, I was uh, partially involved with Stephen Greer's work when I was in Wiltshire doing the crop circle work. And uh, yes, there were times when I'd sort of just walk off into the fields and um, usually around the uh, places called the Giant's Graves, where some very, very tall people were once interred. Uh, again, sacred sites uh, aligned on the energy f- uh, field of the earth. Um, there'd be these times where these uh, orbs would spontaneously just appear above these beautiful mounds and uh, they'd actually react to your thoughts a second before you even uttered a, a word. You know, like you'd say, I wonder if I can get them to move to the right. And they would do it just before you say it. So it's pretty obvious that uh, these things are living there. Um, you know, they're organisms which appear at, at uh, our highest level uh, of um, uh, of, of perception, because uh, one of the things that became very obvious was that uh, these forms, uh, which uh, we see, are actually very physical on their level of reality, but they can't manifest in ours at a physical level, at least not all of them, because their rate of vibration is just like a, a radio station very high up on the dial. You know, for them to manifest at 88 FM is bloody hard. Right. So the, the the best we can do, the best they can do, is to show the, uh, themselves as light forms, which is our highest level of perception. Uh, and that's where, of course, the interaction of, with sort of magic occurs. But uh, all you need is just sort of to be able to experience that and realize that uh, you know, we're actually much more connected with these forms and, and in much more an intimate way than we tend to give ourselves credit for. Okay, that is fascinating. And I want to move now to your new book, which I know is going to pull together a lot of these topics because we're going to be talking about initiation. We're talking about our higher consciousness. So please tell us about The Lost Art of Resurrection. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating topic, and in fact, it pulls together all my four books. Uh, I started off with crop circles, and I ended up with resurrection. And people might think, what on earth has this got to do with each other? Uh, actually, uh, all of these things are to do with um, the ancient mystery school secrets, uh, for which if we'd been having this conversation about 600 years ago, you and I would have been burnt alive at the stake. Uh, so these are all to do with elements of self-empowerment. So just as the crop circles are showing us up how to empower ourselves relative to our environment and relative to how we can also be conscious beings walking on a conscious earth. So this very ancient ritual of living resurrection was also practiced by uh, initiates in the, the mystery schools of old. And uh, even today in, uh, in practical Freemasonry, it's still practiced to a certain degree, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> it, it's an English thing. Right. I also have a bit of humor in there. Um, I like it. <laughs> And uh, I discovered that uh, basically it's a very old ritual that I've uh, been able to find as far back as 2,500 B.C. in China and Japan. Uh, and it was called the Wei, uh, what they would call the Tao. And uh, basically it uh, evolved a certain method of actually uh, teaching people about the mysteries of the cycle of life, how nature really works and the mechanics of the universe. 
and it was only taught to people who had gone through, let's say, three and four years of initiation into the mystery schools. And the highest level of uh, initiation was to be able to go and into a bridal chamber where you take a small narcotic just to lessen the fright that you're about to get. And under the... Uh, um, guidance of a wisdom keeper or a priest, um, you would have a voluntary near-death experience where your soul would voluntarily leave your body and go walk about in the other world. And this could be done for 24 hours or three days. And it was usually done in an underground chamber below a pyramid or a special cave uh, or a special room that was dedicated inside a mountain that was specifically hollowed as a kind of, uh, described as a bridal chamber. Because in these places, you'd actually become wedded to the divine virgin, uh, people that we'd be describing today as Isis or Mary Magdalene or people who took on that mantle over history. And what though, happened was, it was described as one of the greatest benefits a person could possibly achieve in their lifetime. Uh, Pythagoras and Plato, Aristotle, all of these famous um, philosophers all claimed that the experience of living resurrection was the highest stage in their spiritual development. And in fact, Plato even described it as the one thing that helped to shape his metaphysical view of the world. Now, that's quite a huge benefit, and that's why the church spent so much time making sure that all of these old esoteric religions were basically killed off. And it's a huge conspiracy, but it's a, it's a true conspiracy, because it also means that you, uh, if this is true, then obviously we have to reevaluate the concept of the resurrection of Jesus, who's one of the last people that we know of, who also was an initiate of the Egyptian mystery schools, who also went through this state of resurrection. And I, uh, I came across a banned gospel by uh, the Apostle Philip, which lays out this entire scenario. And he says quite clearly in his own words that anyone uh, who ex uh, thinks that resurrection is, a real, uh, is an actual event is confusing a spiritual truth with a, a, a historical event. The two are not connected. And he said that the whole resurrection of Jesus was a metaphor. He actually didn't die on the cross, much less was risen from the dead, because that's impossible. You can't raise a, a dead organism back to life. And what he said was that you have to experience living resurrection while you are alive. And if you don't, when you die, you will receive nothing. And he went on to actually chastise fundamental Christians as a faith of fools because they took the teachings of Jesus literally and not metaphorically. Now, that changes things considerably because the benefit was extraordinary because once you crossed on the other side voluntarily, you were able to come back totally conscious into your body with a total grasp of celestial mechanics. And all the people and all the uh, writings that I've read in, that went into this book uh, and these were also still happening in the uh, Greek era. This is only about um, 1,800 years ago, not that long ago. Uh, they claim that when they came back, they had a total grasp on how the manifestation process works. They were able to live life fully aware. And as, as, as they called themselves, they were called the risen from the dead. Uh, so they were able to live life fully aware, totally conscious of themselves, of their soul, living in a physical body, and they were able to essentially dictate how life works according to their will, but only if it was done, of course, for the greater good and for their own better selves as well. So this is why it was such an important book to write, because it's something that we're all searching for today. How do we take control of our lives? 
And these people, thousands of years ago, right up to the Greek era and also the time of the Romans, were saying exactly the same thing. This is the, the most self-empowering thing you can give yourself is go for this process. And uh, we may think of this as a, a dead technology, a dead teaching, but it's actually not because it's exactly the same thing I was talking about at the beginning of the program, which is about experiences in crop circles, experiences in temples. You have a, a very similar experience when you go to these sites because the essential ingredients are still in place. And if you go to places where you are allowed to have quiet time by yourself and go well prepared, you can actually have an out-of-body experience that connects you to the other world. And when you come back, you are no longer the same person that when you left. This is so interesting because I know in many shamanic cultures they have the the voluntary death experience, which is very transformative. And I'm thinking even of near-death experiences, which people have without any spiritual preparation or teaching, but they often come back and they've got had had an incredible new view of the universe, of their lives, and often with new abilities as well. Absolutely. And in fact, there was one very famous case uh, quite recently where there was a physician who did have an involuntary uh, near-death experience, and she actually described the procedure uh, in the hospital and uh, other elements that she could not possibly have known under an anesthetic or while her soul was actually out of the body. And it totally changed a whole segment of um, healthcare overnight. I mean, suddenly a lot of doctors are beginning to ask questions about the survival of the soul in these experiences. And she claims that uh, when she came back, she had a uh, better health. She was able to see things with greater clarity. She was able to perceive things on a much subtle level. And these were exactly some of the things that people described back in the Egyptian era when they were doing it in 2500 BC under one of the pyramids of Saqqara in Egypt, uh, that people came back with a much greater sense of empathy, uh, of ability to be healers as well. And also to think things through in a much more philosophical level, because you can see the, the whole world and the whole universe as a whole, not just in its constituent parts. So you suddenly become a person watching the world while also taking an active role in it. And that means that you are now totally, your soul is actually consciously aware of what it's doing down here. And that's a huge benefit and consequently why it was also so put down by uh, orthodox religion. Absolutely, because that would make you so independent. The priests would be the potentially the ones who could help you get there, but they would no longer have to be the intermediaries anymore. Exactly. Uh, and today, of course, in order to reach God in the Western world, you have to have an intermediary. Uh, but what the uh, even the uh, original esoteric Christians, who were being killed by the fundamental Christians uh, back in the 4th century, um, even they too claimed that you don't need an intermediary for this because you already are an expression of God. You just have to learn how to go within. And these schools were able to teach you the mechanics of how to te- do that for yourself. And it was the one thing that actually separated that from pure shamanism, because in most shamanic experiences, uh, when you're inducing things like ayahuasca, for example, uh, you are to a certain degree out of control when you're on the other side. And the one thing that I learned from these um, first-hand accounts when I was writing the book was that uh, to a certain degree, the initiate had a degree of control when they were in the other world, and then they came back totally cognizant of what they, the information that they had received. Uh, and that's a huge deviation from normal shamanism. There are uh, methods within shamanism that don't uh, use ayahuasca. I'm not knocking ayahuasca because it's quite interesting, but that are done without any drugs and actually 
are, are designed to give the person the experience on the other side of leaving the body and what's the experience of leaving the body? What do you encounter? What are the different levels? Um, it comes, I, I've, I've actually been through it myself and it comes a little bit later in training, but it's fascinating. It, it, it certainly changed my life to experience that. Exactly. I mean, you don't see the, the world uh, in the same way that before you left. And, uh, you know, to, to come back to the full circle to this conversation, I mean, my first experience was actually in a crop circle. And I had not gone there exper- uh, expecting it. I didn't even know it was even possible. Uh, and uh, I just remember being taken out of the body and levitating over the actual field by about, I don't know, two, three feet, because I've got the bump on the back of my head to prove it, that I hit the ground with a thud 40 minutes wow. later. And really? uh, I can tell, I can describe the uh, the whole event uh, as though it was yesterday. It totally changed my life uh, again and again. And uh, one of the things that I learned, although I didn't realize it at the time, is that in these these moments when I crossed on the other side and I saw these extraordinary beings, um, I just felt being surrounded by this extraordinary sense of unconditional love for the first time in my life. And coming back and realizing that something had just been downloaded. I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. I was mumbling like an idiot. And then, of course, the first book just came straight out of that experience. And that's where I suddenly realized how powerful this stuff really is. Because to this very day, half that book, I don't remember writing or even knowing where that information came from. Uh, and it's still very valid to this very day, as the first day was written. So it's uh, definitely one of the uh, personal experiences that I've had that totally aligns with what people like Plato were talking about when they crossed over, that it really helped to shape their view of the world and also their work. You know, even Isaac Newton had a very similar experience, and he hinted that he too, through the Rosicrucian and also the early um, Freemasonic movement, with which he was associated, he too had experienced this um, living resurrection ritual in order for him to reach the point where he understood how gravity works. And he hints at this in his memoirs. You just have to read between the lines. It's all there. Now, we only have about a minute and a half, but I wonder if you could tell our, our listeners how they could reach you. Um, and, of course, you're doing tours, you're, you're giving lectures. Is there anything upcoming? Uh, this is actually the close of the, a very busy year, but... Um uh, you can certainly go to my website at invisibletemple.com. Uh, you'll be there for hours. Uh, there'll be, you know, my books will be there, my DVDs. There'll be lots of articles. There's always something. And uh, if there's uh, any information that you want to uh, contact me about, then uh, just click the contact button. And I'll try to get back to people between uh, one hour or a whole year. Depends on how busy <laughs> I am. Somewhere in there. <laughs> I, I also want to recommend uh, Great Mysteries because I really enjoyed your lectures. Uh, a couple, two or three that I've seen on Great Mysteries. Oh, yes. Online. There's quite a few of those uh, online somewhere. I I sort of lose track of all the places I've spoken. I've been on a permanent tour for about 12 years. Uh, I've got um, air miles with just about every airline carrier, but it's certainly great fun because you get to reach so many people around the world and initiated them into what used to be called the Earth Mysteries of the uh, the Great Mystery School. So I'm following in a long lineage of people who try to wake people up. Thank you. Thank you so much because it's been fascinating. We could do like five interviews and we still wouldn't scrape the surface, but thank you so much. And uh, I really <laughs> hope you'll come back. This is Ann Gelsheimer with Conscious Evolution Radio.
ancient spirits there from Anima. Around the world there's lots of different methods for uh, connecting with spirit. The shaman in Mongolia hold a drum with the back against their face and then they drum so that the energy from the drum gets them connected to spirit. Now talking about out-of-body experiences, here's a little story. When I was at school, I don't know how old I was, five, six, seven, we had to do a draw, a painting, and I couldn't think of anything to paint. So the teacher said, come back tomorrow and we'll do it again. The next day, I did a painting, and it was an aerial view of fields, rolling fields, but the only concept it was taken from was above the earth. Now, there's no way, at my age, lying in bed, that I would ever know that. Um, but for some reason, I did this painting, and everybody was quite, quite pleased with it. And then some 70 years later, I find out that I was taken by aliens at some stage. But that's another story. Now, this is something really powerful, um, and it's so true. We need to do something, folks. It's a guy called Spencer Cathcart. At this moment, you could be anywhere, doing anything. Instead, you sit alone before a screen. So what's stopping us from doing what we want, being where we want to be? Each day we wake up in the same room and follow the same path to live the same day as yesterday. Yet at one time, each day was a new adventure. Along the way, something changed. Before our days were timeless, now our days are scheduled. Is this what it means to be grown up? To be free? But are we really free? Food, water, land, the very elements we need to survive are owned by corporations. There's no food for us on trees, no fresh water in streams, no land to build a home. If you try and take what the earth provides, you'll be locked away. So we obey their rules. We discover the world through a textbook. For years we sit and regurgitate what we're told tested and graded like subjects in a lab raised not to make a difference in this world raised to be no different smart enough to do our job but not to question why we do it so we work and work left with no time to live the life we work for until a day comes when we are too old to do our job it is here we're left to die our children take our place in the game to us our path is unique but together we are nothing more than fuel the fuel that powers the elite the elite who hide behind the logos of corporations. This is their world, and their most valuable resource is not in the ground. It is us. We build their cities. We run their machines. We fight their wars. After all, money isn't what drives them. It's power. Money is simply the tool they use to control us. Worthless pieces of paper we depend on to feed us, move us, entertain us. They gave us money, and in return, we gave them the world. Where there are trees that cleaned our air are now factories that poison it. Where there was water to drink is toxic waste that stinks. Where animals ran free are factory farms where they are born and slaughtered endlessly for our satisfaction. Over a billion people are starving despite us having enough food for everybody. Where does it all go? 70% of the grain we grow is fed to the animals you eat for dinner. Why help the starving? You can't profit off them. We are like a plague sweeping the earth. 
tearing apart the very environment that allows us to live. We see everything as something to be sold, as an object to be owned. But what happens when we have polluted the last river, poisoned the last breath of air, have no oil for the trucks that bring us our food? When will we realize money can't be eaten, that it has no value? We aren't destroying the planet, we're destroying all life on it. Every year, thousands of species go extinct, and time is running out before we're next. If you live in America, there's a 41% chance you get cancer. Heart disease will kill one out of three Americans. We take prescription drugs to deal with these problems, but medical care is the third leading cause of death behind cancer and heart disease. We're told everything can be solved by throwing money at scientists so they can discover a pill to make our problems go away. But the drug companies and cancer societies rely on our suffering to make a profit. We think we're running for a cure, but really we're running away from the cause. Our body is a product of what we consume, and the food we eat is designed purely for profit. We fill ourselves with toxic chemicals, the bodies of animals infested with drugs and diseases. But we don't see this. The small group of corporations that own the media don't want us to. Surrounding us with a fantasy, we're told is reality. It's funny to think humans once thought the Earth was the center of the universe. But then again, now we see ourselves as the center of the planet. We point to our technology and say we're the smartest. But do our computers, cars, and factories really illustrate how intelligent we are? Or do they show how lazy we become? We put this civilized mask on, but when you strip that away, what are we? How quickly we forget only within the past hundred years did we allow women to vote, allow blacks to live as equals. We act as if we're all-knowing beings, yet there's much we fail to see. We walk down the street ignoring the little things, the eyes who stare, the stories they share, seeing everything as a background to me. Perhaps we fear we're not alone, that we're a part of a much bigger picture. But we fail to make the connection. We're okay killing pigs, cows, chickens, strangers from foreign lands. But not our neighbors, not our dogs or cats, those we have come to love and understand. We call other creatures stupid, yet we point to them to justify our actions. But does killing simply because we can, because we always have, make it right? Or does it show how little we've learned? that we continue to act out of primal aggression rather than thought and compassion. One day, the sensation we call life will leave us. Our bodies will rot, our valuables recollected. Yesterday's actions all that remain. Death constantly surrounds us. Still, it seems so distant from our everyday reality. We live in a world on the verge of collapse. The wars of tomorrow will have no winners. For violence will never be the answer. It will destroy every possible solution. If we all look at our innermost desire, we will see our dreams are not so different. We share a common goal, happiness. We tear the world apart looking for joy, without ever looking within ourselves. Many of the happiest people are those who own the least. But are we really so happy with our iPhones, our big houses, our fancy cars? We've become disconnected, idolizing people we've never met. We witness the extraordinary on screens, but ordinary everywhere else. We wait for someone to bring change without ever thinking of changing ourselves. Presidential elections might as well be a coin toss. It's two sides of the same coin. We choose which face we want, and the illusion of choice, of change, is created. But the world remains the same. We fail to realize the politicians don't serve us. They serve those who fund them in the power. 
We need leaders, not politicians. But in this world of followers, we have forgotten to lead ourselves. Stop waiting for change and be the change you want to see. We didn't get to this point by sitting on our asses. The human race survived not because we are the fastest or the strongest, but because we work together. We have mastered the act of killing. Now let's master the joy of living. This isn't about saving the planet. The planet will be here, whether we are or not. Earth has been around for billions of years. Each of us will be lucky to last 80. We are a flash in time, but our impact is forever. I often wish I lived in an age before computers, when we didn't have screens to distract us. But I realize there's one reason why this is the only time I want to be alive. Because here today, we have an opportunity we never had before. The internet gives us the power to share a message and unite millions around the world. While we still can, we must use our screens to bring us closer together rather than farther apart. For better or worse, our generation will determine the future of life on this planet. We can either continue to serve this system of destruction until no memory of our existence remains. Or we can wake up, realize we aren't evolving upwards, but rather falling down. We just have screens in our faces so we don't see where we're heading. This present moment is what every step, every breath, and every death has led to. We are the faces of all who came before us. And now it is our turn. You can choose to carve your own path or follow the road countless others have already taken. Life is not a movie. The script isn't already written. We are the writers. This is your story. Their story. Our story. That's why this radio program is called The Voice Within. Because we are being taught to listen to what's in ourselves, not by other people, not by great pharma and governments and people. Go within yourself and find out the answers for yourself. What is right for you is right for you. Might not be right for anybody else, but it is for you.
Brian Barry, been the voice within. Shalom, kakite, namaste, masala. May your God go with you. Episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.